to those of you who maybe are new to the church, my name is Trevor. Um, I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. And if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I want to welcome those of you who are kids in the room. Yeah, back there too. Um, all kids are welcome in this space. It's the holidays and we are together as a church this month in December. We are doing family services. And let me really say that the purpose of the family service is to bring families together to worship together. That our kids need to see mom and dad singing songs. They, they need to see and model how how do you listen to a sermon? How do you participate in the prayers? How do you, um, how do, you do what we do? I, I think all of these things, like we were made to worship God as, uh, as a people, and so we want to all be together. And so kids, if you're here in the room, um, you got a little box when you came in this morning. Inside that box are some things to, to fidget with, which will be helpful for you, um, and including a, a fill-in-the-blank. If you are following and listening to my sermon, I will give you some of those fill in the blanks for you as we're going along. Hopefully that helps you uh, follow where we're at this morning. And uh, you might have gotten a couple of objects in there that we'll refer to as we're going together this morning. Well, um, I want to begin by, uh, by sharing a story of what Christmas has been like a little bit for us. Uh, this is a season where there are kind of high expectations uh, I don't know if you have them, high expectations for the kinds of Christmas experiences we're supposed to have. And uh, it's, a, it's a season that's just kind of filled with all sorts of beauty and wonder and amazement, and it's so special. Uh, Christmas has got all kinds of traditions. I know that you've got a bunch as well. And one of the things that we did recently as a family is we went to, um, to, the, to the Grove uh, at uh, Farmer's Market, the Grove down on Fairfax. Everyone know where that is? They have a 100-foot Christmas tree at the Grove. And our family the last few years has gone down to the Grove to take a picture in front of this 100-foot Christmas tree. And if you've never been to the Grove at Christmas time, it's beautiful. Everything's decorated so nicely. And uh, they've got, you know, beautiful lights and you've got this massive tree and we have great weather in Los Angeles. So you can just walk around outside as people are, uh, as they're kind of getting their, their coffee and their hot chocolate and their um, ice cream and whatnot. And our family went to the Grove to go, uh, to go take a picture in front of this Christmas tree. And when we got to the Grove, we were, we thought it was beautiful. We had a wonderful time. Um, and then we, we, we said, hey, before we leave, let's go take the family photo. And so we said, let's head over there. And as we're kind of walking over to the big Christmas tree, um, someone in my family, to be unnamed, um, just says um, out loud, I think I'm going to throw up. Now, this as a father and as a parent and as, you know, as a me, I'm sort of like, all right, this is a solvable problem. We can endure this. Um, and so I begin to scour at the Grove for the bathrooms, which are rooms that are relatively well hidden at the Grove. Um, they're not just out and obvious. And so I, uh, I sort of am scanning around, and I'm not joking that five seconds after the words, I think I'm going to throw up, uh, were said, there was just an event. Let's just say there was in the middle of the grove, in the middle of the, you know, the cable car and the lights and the Christmases and people ordering their white 
chocolate, peppermint, ice cream, just every, it feels like in a split second, the entire place stopped and everyone is now standing in and looking at our family as we are ruining or fertilizing um, the grove's grass. And, and, and I, it's sort of this moment for me that I, I love as I think about because it so perfectly for me points to the reality that Christmas isn't perfect. There's so many expectations about what Christmas is supposed to be. And it would be foolish to stand in this stage and just sort of pretend this morning as though all of our Christmases, all of those movies we watch and songs we listen to and experience we have, as if everything's going swimmingly. Because we know that Christmas isn't perfect. I, I know that this morning we are, we are we're buying presents for people we don't necessarily like. Um, we're not even sure if they're going to like what we get them. There are certain family members that we're not talking to. Some of us are avoiding the season altogether and how it makes us feel because we lost a loved one. Some of us are battling sickness. Some of us are struggling at work. And we, we want to feel a particular way about Christmas, but we don't. Christmas isn't perfect. And this morning, as we march toward Christmas morning together, the text I want to look at is really to highlight this truth, that you can be comforted by God even when you are very uncomfortable. Does anybody need to hear that this morning? That you can be comforted by God. You can have God's comfort even in the midst of discomfort when, in the rest of your life. And, and that's how I often think about and experience a Christmas. So if you have a Bible, um, Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be this morning. And I want you to hear this text, verses 1 through 11. This is what Isaiah 40 says. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, 
herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be comforted even when you are uncomfortable. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Isaiah, let me just give you a little bit of where this chapter fits in. When you start reading the book of Isaiah, you get 39 chapters of judgment. This prophet named Isaiah, who is sent by God, stands before Israel and declares to Israel, you have trusted in the wrong things. Isaiah tells them, you trusted in Egypt against the Assyrians. You never should have done that. You should have trusted God. You've trusted in Babylon, but Babylon's going to betray you. Isaiah says to the people of Israel, you have practiced rebellion against God. You have practiced idolatry. You've looked all kinds of places for help except for God who made you and knows you and loves you and has been faithful to you. You have allowed injustice to reign in your community. You have allowed the poor to be mistreated. You have failed in your responsibility to care the way that God has commanded you to care. So therefore, let me tell you what's going to happen, Isaiah says in the first 39 chapters, you're going to go into exile. Hezekiah, your king, he made a deal with Babylon. That's not going to work out so well. Babylon is eventually going to force you into exile. That time is coming. And so for 39 chapters, Isaiah tells them, I, exile is coming. Everything's going to be stripped from you. Life is going to be very difficult. You are going to be under God's judgment. And you're probably wondering after 39 chapters and hearing Isaiah declare to God's people, judgment, exile are what's coming. You're probably wondering, well, what's, what next? What's going to be next? And in Isaiah chapter 40, everything changes. It's the hinge point of the entire book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, right there, you get this picture that emerges on through the other side of the exile. So Israel has not yet gone into exile. They've not yet experienced that judgment. They're headed towards it. But now through history, a, a prophecy comes through exile to speak to God's people. And you get a voice of a word that you would not expect as you're preparing for difficulty. You would not expect God to say, comfort. Here's the outline for how we'll look at this text this morning. God's comfort, God's coming, God's constant, and God's care. And all of this is under this heading of what God begins to say in verse 40. Sorry, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, 
comfort. So let's begin. Verses 1 and 2. A voice of God's comfort. If you have it in front of you, you'll see this. Again, it's so strange that that Isaiah 40 breaks in and and God declares to his people who've been rebellious, who've been idolatrous, who who have done all kinds of injustice. God says, comfort, comfort. He says it twice. Comfort, comfort my people. Says your God. Kids, you, um, in your, if you're here, kids, you have a little box that you got when you came in. Inside of that box is a stethoscope. Now, I know that many of you know what a stethoscope is. For you kids who don't know what it is, it's that cold thing that your doctor puts on you that gives you just, you just hate the sensation of going to the doctor's office and having that thing put on your chest. That's an old invention that stethoscope is. It was invented by a French man who um, really wanted to hear the heart and lungs and came up with a really simple device to do it. The stethoscope gives the doctor the ability to focus really clearly on something that the doctor really needs to hear because in order, if the doctor hears your heart and lungs, they get a much better sense of how you are doing in your body physically. And the reason you have a stethoscope is because I want you kids to hear that there are some voices this morning that that just like a stethoscope, you've got to really hear because they'll make all the difference in your life. And the first voice is the voice of God's comfort. God says, comfort, comfort. Now, there's a popular sort of Danish trend that I think about all the time during this year, and some of you are familiar with it. It's called Hugo. Did I pronounce that right, Jens? No. Go ahead. Give it to me, Jens. <laughs> Give it to me, Jens. Hugo. No, it's not Hugh. It's who. Hugo. Everybody say Hugo. Hugo is, yeah, Jens is so proud. Um, uh, Hugo is uh, this Danish concept of coziness. Right, And so it's a, it's a whole uh, cultural concept that connects to the ideas of hot chocolate and fireplaces and blankets and, you know, that sensation when it's cold outside, but you've got a nice warm blanket and you're sort of toasty and you're enjoying the warm fire and everything's so cuddly and wonderful. That's, that's huga. And when people think of comfort and they think, they think typically of coziness, Um, But God is not declaring to his people, what I've come to give you is that sensation of having a nice blanket and a warm fireplace and hot chocolate. That's not what God is saying. Instead, the word for comfort here is the sort of deep, centered sense that all is okay. You you can experience the comfort that God is saying, I want to give you comfort. You can experience it if you understand that it's deeper than the external sort of comforts that we think about often. And what does God say? What gives them that comfort? He says to Israel, even though they are on the precipice of judgment and exile and difficulty, even though they have rebelled, what does God say? God says, you're still my people. I'm still your God. I have not abandoned you. And then what does he say? He says, tell, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended. The hardship is over. Her iniquity is pardoned. 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This double is just a way of God saying it's been fully and completely and totally dealt with. Now, if you're wondering and you're reading this text, you're you're thinking, how, how is God going to deal with the sins of Israel as they are facing exile? And the answer is going to be found in about 13 chapters when in Isaiah, God will begin to speak about the one who will come and deal with their sins, this suffering servant, this Messiah, this king. But their sins are going to be paid for, not by them. They will enter a season of hardship yet, but their season of hardship could not possibly pay for their sins. God was going to have to do it, and God promised that he would do it, and that it would be paid for by himself. God deals with our sins for us. Kids, if you're taking notes, that's the first fill in the blank. God deals with our sins for us. Isn't it remarkable that the first thing that God says is comfort is here. And and they're wondering, how will we receive comfort? We're about to go into exile. And God says, you can receive comfort because you can know that your sins are going to be dealt with. The biggest source of discomfort in your life is your disconnection and lack of peace with the God who made you. Now, granted, that's not what we think, is it, right? If you watch commercials throughout the holiday season, you're going to hear that there's all kinds of things that are the source of your discomfort in life, that your biggest problem is you don't have a nice enough car, you don't have this set of tools, you don't have this kitchenware, you don't have this item. If you just purchase these things and you have this kind of fireplace and this kind of blanket and this kind of song and this kind of no one's fighting and everyone's at peace and everything's going to be okay. But it's all a ruse. It's all a lie. At the core of everything, our biggest discomfort deep down in our lives is that we're not really sure where we stand with the God who made us. And God says that the problem that exists between us and God is not a problem that we will have to solve. It's a problem that he will solve. You're still my people. I'm still your God. And I will deal with the division and separation between us. This is the great source of comfort. And if God deals with your separation and God deals with your sins, that when God deals with it, God, his presence could never be taken from you again. His peace can never be taken from you again. Your job, and partially this Christmas, is to remind yourself perpetually of the peace that you already have with God, not to go looking for it outside of yourself. It's already arrived. It's already here. And if you are in Christ, you've already received it, and it can't be taken away from you. We we think that if God were to announce comfort that God would show up and say, let me look at all the hard stuff in your life and I'll deal with all of that. But God doesn't do that. He shows up and says, comfort is found in the fact that I'm going to deal with any of the issues between us. I'm going to make peace with you. Peace with God is what you need the most. And that's what God does for you and offers to you as a source of comfort. But it's not enough 
God continues with God's coming. In verses 3 to 5, we get another voice. A voice cries in, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. God, it's, it's not just that Isaiah says comfort. You're going to have comfort because God's going to deal with your sins. It's also that Isaiah says your great comfort is that the God who has made peace with you is coming to be with you. And God's willing to disrupt the whole world to get to you. One of the worst parts about living in Los Angeles, one of there's so many good things, right, is when the president comes to town. <laughs> Unbelievable these last couple of days, right? Like, I want to make a left on this street. No, you can't do that. The president's going to be here in about eight hours, and so we've shut this whole thing down. Feel free to find some other way to get where you need to go. I mean, just gridlock all over on the west side when you're trying to go somewhere. Why? Because when the president comes to town or when presidential candidates come to town, in order to do fundraising, they sort of inconvenience all of us so that that person can get where they need to go. We just saw this recently um, in, in the city of San Francisco, right? Some of you followed the news and saw this, that the president of China was coming over to San Francisco, and so they cleaned up the city completely. They fixed everything so that everything could be smooth for this arrival of this guest. Those two pictures of the ways in which everything's kind of cleared out of the way so that someone can get right to where they're going is the picture that Isaiah is painting, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley, so every low point, every pothole will be filled, right? That's our equivalent today, right? Every pothole will be filled. Every barricade will be taken down so that God can get to you. You, you, you just have to get this. It's not just that Christian faith declares that we can have peace with God. It's that the God who has made peace with you wants to come near to you and is pursuing you this morning, this season, in this life. I don't know what religious tradition you grew up in, but there's a good chance that if it wasn't the Christian one, it involved you wrestling with this question, how do I get to where God is? And the Christian story declares that that's the wrong question. That what you must understand is that the question is, how is it that God got to me? How did he get to me? Through all of my issues, all of my junk, all of my rebellion, all of my idolatry, all of my stubbornness. How did he get to me? Israel has done everything wrong. And Isaiah says, you can have comfort because your sins are forgiven. And oh, by the way, God's clearing every obstacle to get to you. Hallelujah. Nothing can get in the way of God coming to you. Kids, that's the second fill in the blank. Nothing can get in the way of God coming to you. The Christian life is not about how you get to God. It's about the God who pursues you. If you're here in this morning... If you're here in this room this morning, it is no accident that you're here. I want you to know that God is pursuing you. And this text would be fulfilled in John the Baptist. Some of you know this. In John chapter 1, verses 20, verse 23, John the Baptist would proclaim that Christ was going to come. 
and that he was that voice in the wilderness. And as the text continues in Isaiah, it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus comes, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You need to be reminded every year at Christmas that God has come to be with us. God is with us. Emmanuel is who God is. God is not far away, distant. God didn't create the world and then kind of go, you know what, that's good. I'll kind of start it and then I'll pull away from it and then I'll just kind of twiddle my thumbs forever. God isn't absent from your life, from your home, from this church, from reality. God isn't off somewhere else. He has not left us on our own. He has pursued us and he comes to us at Christmas in the person of his son, Jesus. God says, you're mine and I've come to you. Do you see this morning that even if you are running away from God, God is chasing you. God pursues you. Third, God's constant. Verse six, we get another voice. A voice says, cry. And I I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Flesh is people. So we are here compared to people. And and it's beauty. People are beautiful. As you know, people, every single human being is made in God's image and is worthy of dignity and respect. We went through that in Genesis. So there's a beauty to people. But at the same time, the beauty of people in this life is sort of fading. Those of you who are parents know that parenting children, um, I heard this saying once, I think about it often, that when you're a parent, Uh, the days are long and the years are short. You just kind of wake up one day and you go, man, there were some really long days, but the time just flies by. We look at our kids and we're like, I can't believe that that's how old you are now. Time moves. Life moves. And as we move forward, we recognize that standing at the end of this life is death, that that's what that's what, that's what happens. People fade. Verse 7, people fade. But then, what is the, great, what is the comfort of God's constancy? It is the, the declaration that the word of God doesn't fade. It stands forever. We are so trendy, aren't we? Do you ever notice how trendy we are as people? We jump from fad to fad. That happens in fashion. That happens in music. That happens in culture. It happens in even sometimes in Christian theology. We become very fad-ish, jumping to the newest fad, the newest idea. We are so trendy. We are so fad-ish. We are so temporary. But the word of God stands forever. Like every. 10 seconds, there's a new news story on social media that's supposed to change everything. I mean, the pace of everything is so fast. 
Here's, I often, um, I, I don't know if I've said this before from here, but if I haven't, I, I'll just say it again. I often liken this book, this, this book, which you, out of great privilege, have access to. Most people in history could not just have a Bible. Um, there are people in the world who still don't have a Bible. We give money as a church to make sure that people who don't have this book, uh, this book can have it. We have access to this book. And this book, God's Word, is it's like a war-torn battleship that has gone through every cultural revolution, through the Roman Empire, through the Assyrian Empire, through the Babylonian Empire. It's gone through the Ottoman Empire. It's gone through every cultural swing and shift. It's, it, it transcends East. It transcends West. It transcends the 20th century and the 21st century and the 18th century. It, it transcends all time. This is God's word. It's like this war-torn battleship that has endured and lasted and remained strong. The older I get, the more I'm aware that a new idea pops into culture every 20 minutes and people jump onto it as if it's the latest, greatest thing only to abandon it in 20 years when they realize that wasn't a great idea. The word of God functions as this stable thing that you can build your life on. And so many young people today are abandoning this transcendent, this lasting, this durable God's word, which lasts forever. They're abandoning it for a dinghy that was built 20 minutes ago out of toothpicks. And they look at the church and they're like, you guys are so old and so stuffy. You trust that old book. Find me a better book. Find me something that's transformed more lives in human history that's lasted and endured all cultures, all time. Everything is fading. God's word lasts forever. I mean, if you could just wrap your eyes, every time you open up the news, if you could remind yourself, this is temporary. I have somewhere in my life access to a book that will always be true forever. Imagine the kind of stability you would have in your life and we would have in our world if people knew that there was something they could hold on to that was going to last forever. Do you trust what lasts forever? Do you spend more time here than other places? How many of us, how many of us in this room, I don't get the impression, I know, I know some of you, I pastor you, so I know you relatively well. I get the impression that none of you are like, most of you are not massive social media users. But let me ask you this question honestly. Like if, if you don't, only the Holy Spirit knows, not me, I don't need to know. Um, if you were to compare your Bible reading to your social media usage, what would come out at the end of the year? How much time are you in what's going to last forever? You want to find comfort? Build your life on that which will last forever. Everything else is shifting sand. Lastly, God's care. The voice of God's care is the final voice. You see it in verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. And herald the good news. So now God's people are supposed to go up onto a mountain and they're supposed to proclaim something. And what do they proclaim? They proclaim that God is the good news. Say to the cities of Judah, say to each other, right? Before the world hears it, the church needs to be reminded again and again, behold your God. What is the gospel? At the heart of the gospel is God. God is the gospel. God saves us so that he can give us himself. And God doesn't just give you comfort. He loans it to you so that you would give it to others. 
So you would share that comfort can be had because here is God who is strong and mighty and powerful. See that in verse 10? Behold the Lord God, he comes with might and his arm rules for him, right? The the picture here is that God is powerful and mighty and strong. He is the one who is going to lead God's people into exile. He is the one who can rescue and save them. There is no one like our God. And in his strong hands, notice what it says here. It says that, behold, verse 10, his reward is with him. His reward. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have someone in your life that's hard to get a Christmas present for? Anybody struggling to find a Christmas present for someone? Okay, all of you. I want you to think about this. This is my question for you. In Isaiah, you get a picture of God coming and God has his reward with him. If you were to get God a Christmas present, what would you get him? He he has everything. What would you get God? God is going to be the ultimate hard to shop for person, right? I think we can affirm that. But I want you to see that here in the text, and I want you to see, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give you something that you can give God for Christmas, you're going, to give, you're going to give people you don't, you're going to give coworkers you don't like Christmas presents. I, some of you are going to do that. The God who made you, formed you, loves you, knows you, saves you, is with you forever. That God, I think you should give him a present. Amen? So we're all in on this idea. It'd be good to give God something for Christmas. Amen? Okay. What do you give God for Christmas? What is his reward in Isaiah? Well, it says this in verse 11. The God who shows up, whose reward is with him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. The same arm that is strong and mighty and rules over the nations, which which treats all nations and all societies and all governments as though nothing is close to his power. All of those things, God is over with his strong arm. And what is in his strong arm? It's his lambs. It's, It's his flock. In other words... God's reward, his his Christmas present, what God wants for Christmas, I can assure you, is you. That's what he wants. You want to give God a Christmas present? Give him yourself. That's what delights him. When God thinks of Christmas morning, what he wants to wake up to, what he wants to open up and find is you there with your heart saying, God, I'm giving all of myself to you. It's all I really have, and there's good news. It's all he really wants. He just wants you. He doesn't just want to forgive you. I know sometimes we think that, right? God wants to forgive us of our sins. Yes and amen. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants you. You're mine, he says. And I'm yours, and I want to be your God through thick and thin, through the highs and the lows, and through the mundane, ordinary moments of your life. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. Give yourself to me, he says. I want to tend to you. I want to gather you. I want to carry you. I want to lead you. I'm going to guess that some of you in this room this morning need to be tended to, need to be carried, need to be 
led. And God says, that's what I want to do for you. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, have you given yourself to God this Christmas? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God wants you this morning. He wants you to give yourself to him. Let me close with a C.S. Lewis quote. I often find myself quoting Lewis. I just love this quote. He said, it is quite useless knocking at the door of heaven for earthly comfort. It's not the sort of comfort they supply there. It's useless knocking on the door of heaven for earthly comfort. That is not what heaven supplies, but I'll tell you something. Heaven supplies a comfort that can endure even when everything else is so uncomfortable. Sometimes I find myself uh, thinking of this single quote, it's not on the slides, of a young girl who was captured by the Islamic State about 15 years ago, young humanitarian named Kayla Mueller. When our U.S. government ended up capturing and ultimately taking the life of um, Baghdadi, the name of that operation was Operation Kayla Mueller. It's named after a young girl. If you've never read her story, it's fascinating. She was kidnapped by the Islamic State, and she wrote a letter to her parents. And in that letter, she uses this one sentence, and she has been kidnapped by them. She was horrifically treated, and she was abused. And she writes this letter to her parents, and in that letter, she says, even in prison, one can be free. What what I want you to know is that no matter the amount of discomfort and chaos in your Christmas, in your life right now, you can be comforted by God because your sins are forgiven. If you've received Christ, if you've trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven because he never stops pursuing you. Because he's given you his word which will endure and last forever. And because he offers to care for you when you need care. Because that's who God is. So yes, as a church, let's go and tell it on the mountain. But let's make sure we're telling it to ourselves first. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how desperately we need you. Many of us in this room are experiencing the discomfort of our Christmas season, not meeting the expectations that we want. We find chaos ruling in our homes, in our marriages, in our family relationships, in our own bodies, in our workplaces, in our schools. We're stressed, we're overburdened, we're sick, we're tired, we're frustrated, we're overwhelmed. We're afraid of failing. Our finances are tight. We're not getting enough sleep. We haven't been eating the way we should. 
So many things, Lord, just don't feel the way that we look out in the world and think they're supposed to feel. And yet into the midst of that discomfort, you declare that we can be comforted by you because our sins are dealt with and what you paid for can never be paid for again because you never give up on us. You never stop pursuing us because you speak to us every day and you give us your word, which lasts forever. And all you want for Christmas is us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would each commit to giving ourselves to you in this season and finding you to be the comfort we need when so many things aren't comfortable. We ask this in your name. Amen.